From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Monday. What am I doing? A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Be sure to tune in Monday because we've got a mailbag program from Father John Tregilio that we just recorded, and it is dynamite. It's going to be terrific, but it's over. So it's back to Friday now. So Colin Donovan, our very own Vice President of Theology, is in the house. If you'd like to... uh, (laughs) Now you know I'm in the house. Where's the mic? This is why Colin is a theologian and not a radio engineer. He doesn't understand the the spatial relationship between his voice and the microphone. Um, But if... uh, Boy, these these Friday episodes just tend to start out this way, don't they? I don't know why they it do. Is. I, I guess because it is a Friday. It's the end of the week, and all that goes with the end of the week. And, yeah, uh, the does. weekend coming. Anyway, as you can hear, Colin is in the house. If you'd like to uh, give us a call and ask a question of our very own Vice President of Theology, the number is eight three three two eight eight E W T N. That's eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. If you uh are outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at ewtn.com. That's openline at ewtn.com. Or you can text your question to Colin. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Matt Gubensky is screening your phone calls. Keep him busy if you would be so kind. <laughs> um, Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our uh, host, as he is every Friday, the previously experienced uh, Colin Donovan. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, Jack. You make it through the thunderstorm this morning, all right? Here, that in was Birmingham? a bit of a surprise with in terms of its uh, velocity, a lot of electricity, and violence, yeah. and wind. Yeah, my dogs didn't like it. Didn't care for it at all. No, dogs do not like no. those kinds no, of storms. Not happy. Not happy about it at all. So. Um, there's a little, uh, speaking of thunder and loud noises, there's a little skirmish going on over in Eastern Europe that most of our listeners are going to be familiar with, and it involves mm-hmm. our old friends, the Russians, uh, as conflicts have seemed to in the last uh, couple hundred years. and uh, well, at least the last 110 yeah. or 100 or so. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's much made about the visionaries in Fatima, and the request that was made to consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Our Lady. Uh, and even though it has uh, assuredly been reinforced to us that that has taken place, um, we're going to do it again. Right. We're going to do Or something similar, anyway. That's right. And I think uh, there's, a, an, there's an interesting line in—I um, was reading, doing some reading 
uh, from the 50s. It was actually from a, a Mariologist, Father Gabriel Rashini, who was one of the early members of the Pontifical Academy, uh, Marian Academy. And he's, he's speaking of what Pius XII did as a con- and the consecrating Russia in 1952. And he had previously consecrated the world to the Immaculate Heart in 1942. He noted that con- the idea of consecration was sort of a new theological era in the church because it was an extension of, of other dogmas and things that we, under- we already understood. Obviously, the unique mediatory and salvific role of Jesus Christ but the the unique cooperation of our lady in that was something which had received doctrines and and so on over the years but had never been lifted up highly in the church and in coming to fatima our lady mentioned that that was the purpose of her doing so that through consecration uh, the church uh, sh- the church should set on uh, devotion to her uh, alongside devotion to Christ with all the proper theological distinctions that are made there, of course. And that consecration did that. And Father Rashini made that point that this was essentially a new era in church in which the Immaculate Heart of, of Mary would receive from God something of the honor which the church had slowly been building to. So consecrations are something that we can do all the time. Uh, the church speaks of baptism as a consecration. We do our Marian consecrations, many of us, every every year, renew those. Because it's an entrustment, as John Paul II said, and it's an appeal. And these two things go together. We entrust ourselves to Our Lady, to whom the Father entrusted his own divine Son. We make that entrustment, and we appeal to her for particular graces. So, the event of Russia and the consecration, and we certainly saw it in 84 with the papal consecration of the world of the Immaculate Heart with a mention, uh, without a naming, but with the mention of those countries in greatest need. We saw the effects of that in the course of five years, the Soviet Union had fell. And finally, after 70 years, there was a Russia again. And so now we are dealing with that Russia in a new context, the context of Ukraine, which is not only a civil threat, it's not a a threat of atheism, but it is certainly a threat to the populace and a threat to religion, which had started to develop a coexistence in the Ukraine between the the Greek Catholics, the Latin Catholics, and the Ukrainian Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox, all of whom were present in that country. And so this is a good time to do that uh, because consecration is always in season, uh, we can do that for uh, to to entrust ourselves to Our Lady in this context and to appeal for her intervention in this context. And that's what the Pope is doing. And I'm very pleased to see that it was announced yesterday that not only will he do it, not only will his emissary do it in Fatima, not only will the Ukrainian bishops do it, uh, and I would presume the Catholic Latin bishops within Russia and the uh, Archdiocese of the Mother of God, but he has invited all the Catholic bishops of the world to participate next Friday, which is at 5 p.m. his time and uh, noon East ta- Eastern time and 11 Central to participate in that act. And it's worth doing, given not just the situation in Ukraine, but the broader context of what if NATO gets involved. And, of course, at that point, we're probably talking a third world war of some kind in some measure. You know, I've 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 sort of uh, 
you know, as I've mulled this over and I've and I've looked down through, I was I was born in the midst of the Cuban Missile Crisis, literally to the month, uh, in, in, right in the in, in the middle of it. And if you look at the stockpile of nuclear warheads that have existed in the last 60 years on this planet, um, there's really no other. And you think about all it takes Mm -hmm. is one bad decision by one lunatic, of which we have had many. Right. And uh, there's really, it's almost hard to imagine any other explanation than the intercession of Our Lady that has kept us spinning around the sun. That's right. And in in the Fatima event was prophesied this strange light of 1938, which uh, is reasonably associated with what you would see in the atmosphere by a nuclear hydrogen bomb going off at altitude. In fact, it looks very much like pictures we took when we did that kind of testing in the South Pacific. So I think she was warning us of the about the nuclear era. And we, we sort of dodged that bullet in 45. The U.S. regrettably used nuclear weapons. But here I think we have an, another chance where we need to, uh, to dodge that bill, bullet again because this is not a bullet that if it does hit you, you easily recover from. This is a much different ball game if, if we go to nuclear war. And I think she was, was speaking of that context uh, as she was speaking of any situation, as I said, in life to entrust ourselves to Our Lady and place our needs and at the foot at her feet. And God's providence acting through her as his instrument uh, will provide the solution. It's a Friday edition of EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, is in the house. So if you've got a question about theology or any kind of church teaching question, you can pose that to Colin today. The number to be on the program is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Prudence Robertson helps you... uh Stay informed and educated with the latest news and truth on abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, and the culture of death each week on EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. And we can send you EWTN's Pro-Life Weekly directly to your inbox each week. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 
It's a free phone call anywhere in the United States. I know it's the end of spring break, and I'm sure all of you spring breakers are laying on the beach somewhere with a deep theological question that has been haunting you for weeks. Pick up your cell phone on the beach and give us a call at 833-288-3986. First up today is Tim in the great state of Colorado, listening on the EWTN app. Tim, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello, Colin. Hey, Tim, what's your question today? I just want to say something. <clears throat> they were talking about, uh, you know, the college students being on the beach. Well, that was, that was I'm going to be 79 this year, so I don't think she was talking about me. But anyway, <laughs> my question has to <laughs> yeah, right, that's what I thought. My question has to do with Jesus having brothers and sisters. And so the explanation is, Colin? Well, the explanation is the equivocal meaning of the word brother and sister in a lot of contexts. Um, today, I mean, it's used among guys, you know. Um, it's used in some ethnic groups particularly. Um, it's used to, uh, I mean, we use the, the word in fraternities and, and so on in, in uh, college. So it's, it's an equivocal term. What we do know is that uh, between Jesus coming from coming from our lady and other cousins and so on we know of John the Baptist but there were probably Elizabeth was older than was a good deal older than Mary uh, there would have been other cousins and so on and we have in any of the references such as under the cross with the three Marys we have different lists of people who are are being referred to as brothers and and uh, of Jesus, so I think to begin with, just linguistically, it's an equivocal matter. Now, theologically, it's not equivocal at all, and so the early church never ascribed brothers of Jesus to being children of Joseph and Mary, and that's the key theological point. Some of the fathers of the church took a direction which was that Joseph was an older man and therefore he had children of, a, of another wife. Western fathers took the direction that Joseph was virgin, as was Mary, and that the two of them lived in this virginal marriage, and this is in the context in which God the Father uh, sent his son down to be born of, of Mary. That is the most solid theological explanation there. That because of the nature of the Incarnation, which we will celebrate on next Friday here in the Church, in which God became man in this woman Mary, it was not, would not have been a worthy thing for that same woman then to have simply, by normal childbirth, had other children. Now think of the parallels in Scripture. In the Old Testament, the care that was taken to carry the Ark of the Covenant, for example, with the tab tablets of the law inside of it, those were the Word of God carved on scone, stone. They weren't the Word of God. And yet, one of the priests had the misfortune of touching it and was struck dead because of the dignity of the ark. 
And then the ark, when it was preserved in the temple, into that holy of holies, the high priest only went once a year. Now, were all of those things a dignity of wood and stone and of earthly space used for religious acts? Or were they prefigurements of a greater dignity? The word, not in stone, but in flesh, and the ark, not in wood, but in flesh, giving birth to the word. That's the way the church looks at it. And therefore, over time, the predominant view is that not only did Mary and Joseph did not have any children of their own, the two arguments can be made that it's simply a reference to cousins or that they're references to other children of Joseph. I think the, the cousins is the more likely explanation. Um, otherwise, we, we get into a lot of complexities regarding who this other Mary, who is the mother of the same people, but not the Mary who is the mother of Jesus. Thanks so much, Tim. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Plenty of open phone lines for you and all kinds of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Matthew's watching us on YouTube, and he says, Why does the Catechism ask us to do good in every action and never do evil to achieve a good end? But God permits or commands evil in the Old Testament, and this is usually explained, quote-unquote, for the greater good. Yeah, I, I think you need to provide examples there, because I don't buy that God ever commands evil. He commands something within his authority, which is almost anything. Since in his authority, the, his providence provides for the death of all human beings and for the fate that we all earn through the sin of Adam and Eve, uh, it, a, there's a, you have to apply a different standard there so that even as a government can order its soldiers off to war to defend a nation uh, and putatively, uh, or putatively kill individuals, whether defensively or offensively, for the sake of preventing them from their, stopping their aggression, the God, can, God can certainly give a similar command. He's the gover governor of all, if you will, the government of all, of all the world and of all history. So I would need a particular example where it's alleged that God is commanding evil. He may be commanding defensive violence or even violence that in the case of the Canaanites, for example, was to punishment for their sins. But after all, that's within his dignity as judge of all. So I think there's no particular case where, um, where I think you can claim that he has, he has commanded evil. Now, perhaps the writers of the scriptures themselves understood it in that way and explained it in that way, but uh, a deeper story is involved. But I think it's simply the, the case that he does, wouldn't command evil. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Um, Amy writes in, people have jobs which prohibit them from having access to church in order to attend Mass. Are they committing mortal sin because of their choice of employment? 
that places them in this situation. An example would be offshore workers. No, not at all, any more than uh, doctors who find themselves working horrible shifts and often on weekends or for long periods or military personnel or, or whatever. No, I think if, you, if you've discerned that you are called to do, do one of those kinds of professions or in those situations or that your own family circumstances that require that for, your, to, for you to live, then on that basis, you have a justified reason for working, working on Sunday. And this has always been the, the point of view of the church, because the commandment to keep the Sabbath is a positive command. It's not like thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not steal, or those which are prohibiting actions. And so there are always different kinds of impossibility which prevent us for, from keeping positive commands like that. And so the need to work or the obligation to work in these kinds of circumstances certainly fall into that category of, okay, it's impossible for me to do both. Uh, I will have to honor God in some other way because I also have to feed the family, pay the rent, and so on. And the church understands that. The church is a mother, and she's not, uh, this, not made the mass law in order to, to break us or to, uh, to harm us even in our you know, well-being in that respect. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that you can just throw off that obligation. <clears throat> I think if this is a perpetual thing, it's something to, or a common thing, it's something to d discuss with your conf confessor. And sometimes in some jobs, they ask simply ask too much of employees, frankly. And that's a good thing to discuss with your employ employer even. Uh, are there other are there other individuals who would work Sunday that would free you? Um, you know, we have in our own country we have Muslims who worship on Friday, we have Jews who worship on Saturday. Uh, we certainly have enough secular and non-believing people as well. Um, so I think if the employer is able to do it, employers ought to also be willing to help out their employees who, for faith reasons, don't want to work, whether it's on a Friday or a Saturday or a Sunday, because that is their, their faith's day of uh, their Sabbath. And Tom in Missoula, Montana, would like to know if a rosary has to be blessed before you use it. It doesn't have to be, but it's a good idea, and I think all religious objects— are, you might say they get a little bit of a spiritual luster from the blessing and they, uh, and uh, the, the prayer of the church now will be accompanying us in a certain sense uh, when we use that. So I highly recommend that if you're buying a rosary or a Bible or something like that, not a necessarily a book you're going to read, but certainly sacred things like the Bible, rosary, sacramentals, and so on should all be blessed. They're not sacramentals if they're not blessed, and they can't be acquire the indulgences that are attached to uh, sacramentals. We've still got three open phone lines for you today on EWTN's Open Line Friday. Pick up the phone and give us a call. That toll-free number is 833-288-3986. Uh, that's 833-288-EWTN. Um, you can also, if you're outside the United States and Canada, give us a call. That number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we will even put you straight to the front of the line if you are outside of the United States and Canada by calling us at one 
205-271-2985. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Or you can text your message. Text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for a response. Text your first name and your question. Message and data rates may apply. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Mary is a first-time caller in St. Louis, Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Mary, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Colin. I'm curious. Um, so with the Pope having, in March 25th, this meeting of the Pope and bishops, hopefully all bishops, will participate, um, consecrated of Russia, will that be seen on TV or radio, or can can the public participate with the Pope? I would think the answer is yes. I don't have any details on that, but uh, CTV, which is the Vatican's television service, generally will publish, will broadcast those kinds of events, and we pick up the signal, so obviously we, will, we can rebroadcast that everywhere. So, it depends on what the Vatican is doing, but I'm sure if those details uh, come out, uh, we will be announcing that at some point. I haven't heard that they have as yet, unless Jack maybe has. Don't, don't know. No, I haven't heard anything either. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sure if it's available, we'll carry it. Yeah. We would tend to want to carry that. It's apparently it's, uh, it's an event that was already planned during the course of which he will uh, make this consecration and has asked bishops around the world now to join him in doing that. Uh, we can always join as well, and the prayer will be public. We don't do it, obviously, as the successors of the apostles, but I think the more people who unite their prayer and unite their intentions to it, uh, that include, uh, increases it, uh, the value of it. Uh, the greatest value is that the churches does it, and this is what God wanted at Fatima, whether it's the 84 event or this event or something else that the church may do. There may be other countries I can think of that might need consecrating down the road at some point. Uh, and in all of those situations, it's because the church is the mystical body of Christ here on earth in the Pope that she asked for it, and she asked for the, all the bishops uh, to do, as was done in 84, and as will be done here. And I think that is, you can imagine what before God the value of such a prayer is in response to a request of the mother of the word. And so I think um, we should expect a lot and, and hope for a lot. And God, Sister Lucy would always say in answer to these kinds of questions, it's in her letters, it's in the, some of the documentation. And that is trusting in God's providence. When asked about what dates and timing and all this, that's all in God's providence. And when asked in 89 whether the other, well, the, the 84 consecration was done, she said, God will be generous. And I think that's what we must look at it. Uh, Debbie in Denver called, and she wants to know if you could explain the neocatechumenate. Not really. I'm, 
Uh, it's. I think it started, and feel free to jump in uh, here if you know more. You're on your own, my friend. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, it was started in Spain as a catechetical movement uh, with a good deal of success, and I think spread to Latin America is a pontifical movement, um, and uh, I think has proven itself very fe- effective at catechizing and, and encouraging vocations. Uh, it's not been without controversy, however, and I think that element of it uh, sort of, you know, bothers people some, especially— If I were that, a betting man, I'd say she's probably contemplating getting involved and— Right, and I, d- I don't know that under under the supervision of, of bishops and archbishops, as, uh, you know, as we all have, uh, things like this go forward usually rather well, and I think it's staying within that— uh, you know, in that communion of the church, which has kept the neocatechumen going uh, and running seminaries in some uh, locations. And uh, so I think that will continue. And as long as that uh, solid communion with the church continues. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next up is Elizabeth in the great state of Wisconsin, listening on Real Presence Radio. Elizabeth, you're on with Colin Donovan. Elizabeth, are you there? Uh, I'll tell you what, we will give a shot next to uh, Joe, who is another first-time caller in the great state of Illinois, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Joe, uh, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. I have a question. God is eternal, and he is present in what we view as the past, the present, and the future. With that in mind, does Christ still weep over the sins of mankind as he wept at Gethsemane? And is his heart pierced uh, to the point where it causes him sorrow uh, over the humanity's multitudinous sins? Well, it did uh, on earth, but we can't say that the suffering continues in heaven just as our own, any sufferings we have in this life. Uh, so the, hum- the contingent elements of human nature, such as its, abil- its mortality, its ability to suffer, uh, these things co- end at death. And of course, in the resurrection, Christ received his resurrected body, uh, which means that it, is, um, it has all of the properties of the, of the resurrected body, all the properties that we will have, you know. So deformities, uh, the results of suffering. Most of the, the people that he has appeared to over the last 2,000 years, he has appeared with the wounds of his passion, but not, of course, with the painful consequences anymore. So what he did, he suffered in his human nature at that time. Uh, he endured that only be, and he was able to endure it only because human nature is able to endure it, not because his, the divine nature is able to endure it. Um, and this is why the church, for example, says that the, the second person of the of the Trinity made man is who suffered on the cross. We don't say God the Father suffered. That's a heresy. We don't say God the Holy Spirit suffered. That would be a heresy. And we can't even say that the divine nature was itself touched in any way by that suffering. But the second person of the Trinity who took to his already existing divine nature and 
this human nature was in the human nature as a person able to, uh, able to suffer in that nature. And so, but not, he can't, the, even that nature is not suffering in heaven. And I think that was really the, the point of your question, and it doesn't. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Brian is another first-time caller in San Antonio, Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. What can we do for you today? So, so my, my question has to do with Jesus bearing our sins. And so... We read, for example, in Isaiah 53, it says that he, he had the punishment that made us whole fell upon him. By his bruises we've been healed. The Lord laid upon him uh, the guilt of all of us. And mm-hmm. we read in, in the second chapter of First Peter, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Is, you know, when we read that, like especially mm-hmm. in Second Peter, does it mean that he bore the price of our sins? Surely he did, but... Jesus was born without original sin, and so also was Mary, and we know that. But did Jesus bear the price of our sins, or did he bear sin itself, sin, the, the degradation of, of grace within us, the separation from God? Did he bear sin itself in him? And if he did, at what point in his life did sin itself come upon him if he wasn't born with sin? Well, the answer is no, and so that's the second question doesn't ha- have the answer to that is no. There is no point. No, he, he bore the guilt of our, of our sins. Uh, that's the only thing that he could bear. He was innocent. Uh, it would be, um, you know, it would, it would be sufficient that he did that since that's what we ourselves bear. It's what we can bear for others. This is the whole in the in the communion of the saints with Christ and and Mary and the saints. We can through our our union with His redemptive act, we can help carry the bear the sins of others and even pay for them, as it were. Not that we can necessarily change their heart, but as an appeal to God. So uh, we're sort of back to the consecration on this one. With Fatima, Our Lady also asked for reparation, and she asked the laity especially to, to do reparation for the sins of the world. Uh, and she even showed them hell to see here, this is where the souls of poor sinners go. Because we can, united with Christ, intend to bear the weight of their sins. This is our little tiny share in what Christ did entirely and completely. And it's not that he didn't do it perfectly. It's that as the mystical, as he suffered, the mystical body must also teach, suffer, sanctify. You know, I'm always reminded, uh, certainly during Holy Week, of that expression he used during the Passion when he said to the women, weep not for me, but for your own children. And he also said, if this is what they do to the green wood, what will they do to the to the brown wood, I think was the expression. In any case, distinguishing between the perfectly just and the rest of us who are not perfectly just, even though we be in the state of grace. And so I think the church continues to bear those sins. Uh, she sometimes does that in the empathetic way of going and helping the poor and helping the 
helping the needy, the miserable, the migrants, as uh, Pope Francis is so uh, preoccupied with. So many people around the world, across the world, uh, moving from one place to another by war or other circumstances. And so this, co- this concern is our participation, our suffering with them for, for sin, because those events are usually brought about by the sins of human beings. And so, no, Christ didn't take upon our sins in the sense that before the Father, he was as unjust as all of us put together. But he took them on in order to manifest his love for us, which, as John Paul II said in his great encyclical on the Divine Mercy, is God reaching down to lift man up from his misery. So it's an act of love, reaching down to lift us up from our misery, and a particular misery, the misery of sin and all its consequences. That's what Christ did, is an act of love. And so we can participate in that as members of the mystical body, uh, and so we, we ought to, and God asks us to do so. Uh, I like that call so much from San Antonio. Let's take another one from San Antonio. Jen is also a first-time caller. In San Antonio, listening also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hello. Um, a question about transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. The last um, Sunday we had the homily about transubstantiation, and afterwards my husband and I were discussing transubstantiation, and then um, it got into discussion about the blood of Christ. You know, the, the Eucharist itself is the body, blood, soul, and divinity, and then we had the trans. The, um, transformation of the wine into the blood. After, you know, COVID, now, of course, we don't get the, the blood. And then we did some more research, and we're, you know, getting on the Internet just trying to, I mean, we're both cradle Catholics, but our catechesis is not probably where it needs to be. So we, we've, we've been trying to grow a little bit more and getting um, more and more involved in our Catholic faith. So we were discussing the, the blood of Christ and how we at Mass now only have the Eucharist. So the question we had was, you know, before the Council of Trent, you know, they how, you know, was it was it uh, did, did everyone receive the the Eucharist as well as the blood of Christ and and so forth? So we're just trying to understand mm-hmm. how now in this our you know we're '80s babies. We grew up in this um, Novus Ordo Mass. Um, we are not sure why we don't get it anymore. We understand the COVID, but even before that, sometimes it wasn't available. So just just a question. Okay. Um, Probably yeah. need to clarify some terms before we get to yeah. the end of this. Right. Um, the history of the reception of both species, which the way the Church refers to that, the species of bread and of the wine, which are sacramental signs of the body and blood of Christ, and by the act of transubstantiation, which is the substance of the bread is changed into the body of Christ, but those properties or accidents, as the philosophers call it, we continue to see those but yet it's Christ, and with the wine, the same thing. So the practice there has been various, uh, in not just in the history of the Western Church, but in the Eastern Church, they generally have given both species um, uh, also. And so there was a period of time where I think in the high Middle Ages that practice ceased, given under the form of bread only. Uh, I'm not sure exactly of that history. But certainly since the Council of Trent, it was not given under both species. Part of it was as a response to the, to the 
um, and even before, as a response to the reformers who said it had to be given. Well, don't tell the church what has to be done because the point is it doesn't have to be done. When we receive either species, we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. The sacramental sign is different in each case. In one case, it's the consecrated bread, which is the sign of the body. But where Christ's body is, well, we better hope his blood's there. And if his blood's there, his soul's there. And if he's there, divinity's there. So here we are, the whole Christ under each species. So there's no necessity of both species because under either one. And so priests sometimes, for those who can't receive uh say, uh, even a host, uh, will take to the sick a little vial with the precious blood in it and give them that. Fully adequate. It's the same as receiving only the bread. So the whole Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity under each species. Now, obviously, at the council, and since then, the idea was that, yes, we understand, each species is completely Christ. But in a certain external way, the sacramental sign way, a fuller expression of receiving the body and blood is to receive both species. That's the preference for both species. But it's not a necessity for both species. So, for example, in some parishes they do it. In others, it's not convenient to do it. It may be a superly huge parish. Or maybe the priest thinks there's some risk to dropping the precious blood or something. Whatever pastoral reason he has for that, that's his, and he's free to do it. So the practices are not uniform, and they don't have to be because one species is sufficient. Then in COVID, of course, very quickly Bishop said, not from the precious blood. Not that the precious blood, but I don't think bacteria and viruses, they don't respect the chalice or even the, the, the precious blood if they go on it. Uh, we're not guaranteed that we won't catch something uh, that is simply there uh, as it was before it was consecrated. And so in the great abundance of care, bishops have different practices in their diocese. And I think most, if not all, uh, stopped the distribution of the precious blood during that COVID time. So I think you'll see it return. But I, the more important point is it's not necessary, although it is a fuller sign of the reality of the body and the blood. And that's why the church certainly favors it in the last 50 years or so. Be sure to check out Divine Intimacy Radio Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Join Dan and Stephanie Burke as they continue to walk through Dan's new book, Devil in the Castle. Um, don't miss out as they discuss the fifth chapter of this book in this uh, Saturday's ep- uh, this Sunday rather's episode. That's Divine Intimacy Radio with Dan and Stephanie Burke at 6:30 a.m. Eastern Time this Sunday, right on, right here on EWTN Radio. Um, next up is Bill in the great state of Michigan. He's in Sanford, Michigan, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Bill, you're on with Colin Donovan. Good afternoon, gentlemen. You have addressed this uh, topic uh, recently, but I'd like some further clarification with regards to the current consecration that's going to be offered uh, of Russia. Now, it's my understanding that the, uh, the instructions for the consecration of Russia is to be Russia. Now, in the past, there has been several uh, consecrations of Russia, but they've also included for example, the world, 
the current consecration is going to be uh, for Russia and the Ukraine. There's also uh, current an invitation by the Pope to have the bishops join him. However, my understanding is the consecration needs to be done by an order of the bishops from okay. the Pope. Okay, I, I know where you're going. Let me answer those because we only have a certain amount of time left on the show. Um, one has to go back to Fatima. One has to read the documents, as I've done on multiple times. The purpose of the consecration of Russia, as I said at the top of the show, was that the role of the Immaculate Heart be lifted up. And that's always been, that's the end game here. Yes, communism is, is, our, is a scourge in whatever day it's a scourge. Nazism was a scourge in its day. Russia will, is apparently a scourge in ours again, whereas before it was the Soviet Union. Though there were Russians in the Soviet Union, Russia did not exist as a country. It does now. So what was done contextually in 84 was fruitful. What is done contextually today, I'm absolutely confident, will be fruitful. Because if we think that we have a legal god up there who says, oh, box A has been checked, but B is a little shorthanded there, uh, then I think we've got a whole wrong idea of what this is. It's not magic. It's, an, it's a response to God and to Our Lady that we surrender ourselves back to him through her in this context. Now, with regard to 84, I'm not prepared to call John Paul II and the servant of God, Lucia dos Santos, the liar, when they said that God has accepted that consecration and will he keep his promise. Because the atheist government of the Soviet Union fell within five years and the freedom of the Eastern Bloc was guaranteed and many of them left it before the five years were up. And so religion rebounded in, uh, in Russia. Uh, there's an interview which uh, Archbishop Kondrashevitz, who was the archbishop not of Moscow because that was, would have been an affront. John Paul II erected the, arch, the Diocese of the Mother of God, home-ported home in Moscow, you might say, if you were a naval officer. And Bishop Kondrashevitz was made the first bishop of the Archdiocese or Diocese of the Mother of God. He went to Fatima in the 90s, and he met with Sister Lucia on several times. And he said in the very first interview she saw him, she was so excited because she wanted to hear about the changes in Russia. And he assured her that it had been effective and it was changing. Now, against those witnesses, the logical argument of legalists and skeptics, I have no time for, and I'm not putting you in there. I know you say you're asking the, the questions that others are asking. I think, again, so, so trusting in God's providence. The Pope is responding to the Ukrainian bishops, I think, under the theory that I put forward, consecration is worth doing in this situation. If China ever becomes a problem, consecration would be worth doing there. You know, if some other kind, there's no limit to the number of times this can be used by which we say, 
Our Lady, ask your son to change this historical situation for us. Now, he won't do it magically either, but he works through grace. He works and he can intervene supernaturally uh, through in miraculous ways as well. And that's his choice. But it's that we elevate her role, in the and which is the true role in the economy of salvation, which is the object of Fatima, if you read the text of Fatima. And that was done in 84. It was done by the other examples. In 42, when Pius XII did it, later on it was acknowledged that the character of the war changed. I read something recently that said that... Um, what was the Brits beat the Germans in North Africa? Alamein happened shortly after that. And a number of battles happened shortly after that, which really put Germany back on its heels and led to its downfall uh, in the course of three years. So these things are effective because they are part of God's plan to manifest the role of Our Lady. Uh, yes, communism and evil, but this is not really about us as much as we want to make it and always do, and that is that the terrible scourge that is taking place in Ukraine today at the hands of Russia is not at the hands of communist Russia. It's at the hands of the nation of Russia. And if in God's providence the concession was 84 and this is the real time the real one because russia is specifically named when it didn't exist before that's in god's providence why do we care what the the legalistic logic of this is just do it mary just do it jesus that's all we're asking you know get it done this other stuff is nonsense i frankly believe <laughs> so you'll be watching if we hear it, I'll be watching it, and I'll be over in the tech room, wherever where they're showing that, anyway. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, Colin, thanks for being so gracious with your time, as you always are. Um, on behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Friday. Thanks for another great week of EWTN's Open Line. We're back at it again on Monday with uh, Father John Tregilio. Until we get together then, God bless.